Now, if you turn with me once more to Acts chapter 20, or listen on as I read verses 13 through 38. Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders. And hear God's word. For Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Oh, excuse me. Uh, verse 13. Uh, then he went ahead uh, to the ship and sailed to Asos, there intending to take Paul on board. Uh, for so he had given orders, intending himself uh, to go on foot. And when he met us at Asos, uh, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregilium. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith and a faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied, accompanied him to the ship. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once more for your word. And we ask you now through the preaching that you might open your word to us with fresh power. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, we find uh, Luke recording uh, vast journeys and a short pace, and, and, and he goes quickly from place to place, and then, he, and then in the way that he records the story, he stops somewhere, and he gives us a snapshot of what happens there. 
It's, it's clear uh, that Paul uh, was too hurried to stop in Ephesus, which he might have done in his journeys, because he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, we read, if possible, by the day of Pentecost, though we don't know why that was. That was his plan. And so, from Miletus, he, he summons the Ephesian elders. He was very eager to speak to them again. Remember, he spent three years with them. He alludes to that here. And, uh, and he calls them, and so they come And he preaches a sermon to them. And then it is on the basis of the sermon that he preaches to them that I now preach this sermon to you. This is a sermon for elders. But at the same time, I think we can all say that these are the kinds of sermons that benefit the whole church, especially a church in which we find both shepherds and sheep laboring together uh, and interacting with one another. I recently, uh, at the ordination of uh, the most uh, the most recent addition to the session, John Rubonham, uh, at, at his ordination uh, in this church, I preached a sermon based upon this passage. Uh, it wasn't that long ago. But here, I, I don't preach the same sermon. I didn't even go back and look at that sermon. I just, well, I preach this sermon to you now as the next sermon in Acts, as part of this broader exposition of the book of Acts. And it's always amazing the things you realize when you come back to a text again. It's noteworthy. Uh, I confess I never knew this. Uh, But now I do. And these are the things you learn when you go straight through a book. Uh, This is the only address that we have from the Apostle Paul to Christians in Acts. Now, we do uh, have an address from Peter in Acts chapter 1 to Christians. At least we have that. I'm not sure about uh, in other places. But most of the addresses in Acts are either evangelistic. Well, they're all evangelistic, but uh, they're evangelistic sermons or they're addresses given to their accusers. Uh, whether the Jews uh, or the Romans. And we'll find a lot of that in the passages to come. Uh, If earlier the the apostles like Peter had to answer to the Jews, uh, later on we find Paul on trial giving a defense uh, for his faith. What we find when we realize that, that this was an address to Christians, is that his his, uh, exhortation to the Ephesian Christian elders resembles a great deal the letters that he wrote In fact, uh, the resemblance is so strong that I could give you this list from John Stott where prominent themes in his letters are are found in uh, this sermon. Uh, There is repentance and faith, verse 21. There is the grace of God, verses 24 and 32. There is the inevitability of suffering, verses 23 and 24. If you know anything about Paul's letters, these are all common themes. There's running the race, verse 24. There's the kingdom of God, verse 25. There's the purpose of God, verse 27, the redeeming blood of Christ, verse 28, the church of God, verse 28, the danger of false teachers, verses 29 and 30, the need for vigilance uh, among the laity and the, the shepherds, verses 28 and 31, our final inheritance, verse 32. And then John Stott didn't include this in the list, but I don't know why. There's the cheerful giver, which Paul likes to talk about as well, which we find in verse 35. But again, what is especially noteworthy here about this sermon, and I do believe it was a sermon, is that it was a message for elders. It was the elders of the church in Ephesus whom Paul was so eager to address. Now, why was this? It was because the Apostle Paul realized something that I hope all of us realize as Christians and as Presbyterians, and that is how much the church depends on good and faithful 
elders. The well-being of the church is very much wrapped up in that idea. Especially given, uh, the Apostle Paul says, uh, the dangers that confront the church. Given those dangers, there is need for good elders. We find uh, the Apostle Peter saying the same thing. He exhorts the elders and then he reminds the church in 1 Peter 5 that the devil uh, prowls about like a lion seeking someone to devour. Given the dangers that confront the church, there is need of good elders. You notice the tone of the sermon. It is overwhelmingly that of exhortation. This is not so much a doctrinal exposition as it is an exhortation to action, which is natural given the fact that this was a farewell discourse. He says, this is the last time I'll see you. We don't know if that was actually true, but that was Paul's sense of things at least, and we see how much this affected them. They could hardly stand for him to leave at the end uh, of the time. Well, Paul is saying there's no time to waste. There's a real urgency in what he says here. This is true preaching. Well, what about the contents of the message? We could divide it into three sections. In verses 18 through 21, we have first an appeal to the past. He says, you know, from the first day, I won't read all the verses, but I'll just begin to. From the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I all I always lived among you, serving the Lord. With many tears and trials, it happened to me how I kept back nothing helpful, proclaimed the, the word to you, taught you from house to house, how uh, I had to endure suffering at the hands of the Jews. He says the emphasis here is what, you know, he's speaking To the Ephesian elders, he's saying, you know the kind of man that I was those three years. You know the kind of life that I lived. It was a life that was free from blame. Now, it's sad that he had to say this. I'll say something about that in a moment. But he he needed to say this. He's saying, you know, there were people who are finding fault with me. But you know it isn't true. Already his reputation was being brought into disrepute here as it had been in Corinth and many other places. He says, you know the kind of ministry I had among you. I, I, what they're saying isn't true. I was I was ministering and laboring diligently. I was living a life free of blame. His reason for doing so, as I indicated, and we find this in many of his epistles, is because there were those who were casting blame at the Apostle Paul and finding fault. And, and it's sad, let me just say, that the minister sometimes has to do this. There are people, it seems, in every place who are ever ready to find fault. And, and Paul had to deal with this, especially with the elders. Uh, Paul had to deal with this wherever he was. And so that's why I say it's sad at times to find him defending himself. He's defending himself here. He's defending himself in 1 Corinthians and some of his other epistles. But it gives you a sense of how much he was under attack from voices in the churches. Uh, this also, I think gives us an indication why Paul had so little uh, patience for accusations brought against elders. He he tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 5, don't receive an accusation against an elder except by two or three witnesses. He was, well, he was ready to defend elders, having experienced as an elder in the church the kind of things uh, that tend to happen to them. Uh, And so even though we read verses 18 through 21 as a kind of, summary of his ministry and many of the things that he says there are happy they're exemplary when we realize the circumstances that led him to say them it's actually quite sad so he looks to the past first but then he looks to the future in verses 22 through 27 and there the emphasis changes from you know to i know 
Uh, he says, uh, he says, I know, uh, in, well, let's see here. I was looking for it in verse 22. It isn't there. At any rate, it's there in the verses. Uh, well, there it is, verse 25. And indeed, now I know. At any rate, what he's saying he knows is what's going to happen. He, he knew it as a result of some sort of testimony. It could have been an inward testimony from the spirit or, it, or most likely, as F.F. F. Bruce says, it, it was the result of a prophetic word that was given to him. As he looks to the future, he says, I know that trials and suffering await me in every town that I go. But he says, I want you to know that that doesn't deter me. It doesn't slow me down. And it's interesting to note, it wasn't that long ago that in Corinth, the Apostle Paul showed up, as you know, he says, with weakness, fear, and much trembling. And the Lord reassured him, saying, no one here is going to harm you. And he spends a year and a half there. At that stage in his ministry, Paul was afraid, and the Lord gave him the assurance, no one is going to harm you. It really seemed at that point in his life, that was the message he really needed. And yet, these many years later, God had given him a different message. Not the expectation of safety, but of trials and imprisonments. But we notice here, instead of fear and trembling, that he was ready to face all that awaited him. Verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life as dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of our God. I know what awaits me, but it doesn't deter me, he says. Perhaps before we could say he was not so ready to face these things. He didn't have so much courage, but now he did. Do you see here, just as an aside, how God grows us up in his school? And I'm almost sorry to say, but it's the truth. Do you see how when we graduate from lesser trials in his school, he brings in the greater? That's what he was doing with Paul. Well, you've suffered a little now, Paul, and I'm going to make you suffer a lot. That's how the Lord often deals with his servants. And he does it because he is glorified greatly in this. How clear it becomes that his servants serve him not for the favors he gives them in this life. For his choicest servants know only sufferings. Men like Paul, men like Job. You remember what Satan said to God? He only serves you for the favors you give him. And God said, I know that's not so. And so when he took away the favors and, and Job worshipped him still. It wasn't about Job anymore at that point. It was about God. God was glorified in the sufferings of Job. God was glorified in the sufferings of Paul. And Paul realized that. Oh, how clear it will become to others. That Christian people serve God, not for his favors in this life, but for the glories that await them in the life to come. And how needful this kind of mentality is, especially in the ministry. And here I would, along with Paul, include the elders, since it was they who needed to hear this. What was needful, especially, was a spirit of sacrifice. Oh, look here, Paul says, whatever I suffered while I was among you, I was faithful to my charge, verses 18 through 21. And even now, whatever trials await me, I'm not concerned about that. My life is not dear to me. Now, that's the kind of thing I'm saying that an elder needs to be able to say and a minister needs to be able to say. That my life is not dear to me, but what is dear to me is that I fulfill my charge as someone who has been entrusted 
by the Lord with a ministry to fulfill. What is essential, in other words, is that the minister, the pastor, the elder does not place his interest above that of his call and his charge. No, this ministry which he has received and every elder and every pastor has received a charge from the Lord. He must fulfill whatever the cost. That's what Paul is saying here. Whatever the cost, I've counted it and I'm willing to pay it, even if it cost me my own life. And eventually we know that it did. This is the cross which the elder bears, that of personal sacrifice and sufferings, uh, that even in some cases, again, of the loss of life. Can the faithful shepherd today say that my life, my comfort, my happiness is not dear to me? What is dear to me is that I might be faithful to he who called me and entrusted me to his service. What is dear to me is that I finish the the, the race With joy, not with comfort, you see, but with joy. Paul is saying this is the kind of ministry that I am engaged in. And as he comes to the end of his exhortation, uh, it's in verse 31. He says, remember the kind of ministry I had among you. He's in, 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 in outlining the kind of ministry he had and will have. He's calling them to follow him even as he follows the Lord. Do we understand why it was then that the, the apostle said at the end of his, his ministry, we read in Second Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 4, he says, I finished the race. I've completed it now that the crown awaits me in heaven. And, and do you think, oh, oh, elders and oh, Christian, what it would be like to come to the end of your race with that kind of assurance? But we haven't gotten that far yet, have we? None of us have. And so still we must run so as to win. We must run with endurance. Not seeking comforts in this life, but be willing to suffer if only we might be crowned at the end of our race. This is the message that every elder of every church needs to hear. Are you ready to hear it? The message is this. As Paul exemplified this spirit of sacrifice to the hilt, so follow him in in his example. And may for every elder and every pastor the day come for us all. That we as elders will be able to clear ourselves of any blame once it is clear we have finished our course. Knowing, as Paul uh, says here, that we have gone among the people preaching the kingdom of God. And such a minister or elder will be able to say to those very people at the end of his race, I testify. This is what Paul says. I testify to you this day. I am innocent. Of your blood. Now, why would he say that? Why would any minister or any elder ever need to say that to the very people he was ministering to? Well, because uh, he knew that there were some who had not listened, some who were hard hearted all along, who refused to ever heed the message. And what the apostle was saying is what any man who is in leadership over the church must be able to say. I have warned you day after day, even house To house, I have warned you to turn from the wrath to come, to repent and be saved, to come into the kingdom of God. You see, the Apostle Paul is assuming the voice of the prophet Jeremiah or Ezekiel, excuse me, the prophet Ezekiel, who through whom the Lord said, why, why would you die, O Israel? All day long I've pleaded with you and yet you never heard me. You wouldn't listen. Why will you perish? Why will you not rather turn and be saved, O sinner? Now, that's the message 
that the faithful elder and the faithful pastor has got to be pleading all the time to the people. And if he has done that faithfully, then as God said through Ezekiel, so Paul could say of himself, and may we be able one day to say of ourselves, O elders, that we are innocent of the blood of our people and that if any should have heard the message and not turned and so perish in their sins, we will be able to stand on the last day free of their blood. Our hands will be clean. And, and beyond that, and this is a solemn and a sober thought, but just think of it. The elder who warned those very people who would not listen will be able with a clear conscience, free of any blame, to be able to stand on the right hand of the shepherd on the last day and to testify against those people and to say, I warned them and I pled with them, but they would not heed what I said. They would not turn from their sins. And so they perish not on account of the watchman who was who was placed above them to warn them, lest they perish in the way, but they perished because of their own unbelief and obstinance of heart. I'm not suggesting, don't misunderstand me. It's as though that's what the minister is always doing. That isn't what Paul is saying. As though the minister is always pleading with the people who would never listen. He's only suggesting if there were any among them, and surely there are some in every congregation, who refuse to heed the message that he was free of any blame. And that's what I'm saying. Every elder and every minister must be able to say. Has he simply and clearly declared the gospel unto them. In such a way that they could not misunderstand it. Has he persevered in preaching that message. The point is once again let us be like Paul. You see he says. Not only did I did I uh, continue to preach to them, but I ever declared the whole counsel of God. Everything that I could think to say, I said it. You see, in Troas, Paul preached long into the night. We have the picture of a man who was eager to tell them as much as they could possibly bear. He wanted them to understand not a little, but a lot. He wanted Christians to grasp the whole counsel of God. You can't read his epistles, an epistle like Romans or Ephesians, and not grasp that he was trying desperately hard under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to help Christians to grasp their inheritance. The whole counsel of God in its, in its, its grandeur, in its breadth, in its depth, in its vast dimensions. But do you realize at the same time, that part of the task of the elder and his faithfulness to his charge in, in preaching and declaring the whole counsel of God means all of it. He isn't just saying, well, these are the things that I want to tell you. These are my favorite things. And so I'm going to talk about these things. These are the things that will make you happy. These are your favorite things. I'm going to tell you those things over and over. No, the faithful shepherd in preaching and declaring the whole counsel of God, is willing to declare those things that even make him a little uncomfortable and those things which the people don't like. And perhaps they'll make the people a little bit upset with the pastor or the preacher himself. And yet still he can say, as the watchman said on the tower, I have been faithful in declaring the whole counsel of God. And the people, well, the people should be thankful when that's the kind of watchman they have or the pastor that they have. They should be thankful for such elders, elders who are committed to the entirety of the scripture, Bible, let's call them Bible elders or scripture, scriptural elders. And, and the kind of scriptural Christian who knows his Bible is thankful when God has placed such people over him. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. May, may every faithful shepherd be able to say that. 
and may be the, may the people be glad it is so. But we come in the last place to his exhortation. You see, he's saying what was true, uh, what had been true of him and what would be true of them, uh, of him, excuse me. But then he comes to his exhortation. You see, he's already been exhorting them in a sense. He's saying, this is what I did, and so this is what you must do. But now he makes it clear in the third place. And so we have in verses 28 through 35 his exhortation to them. Therefore, therefore, and he isn't really talking so much about himself anymore. He's talking to them. And there's a double exhortation in verse 28. Once again, based mostly on an appeal to his own example and ministry among them, which they had witnessed for three years. In which he had just recounted. The first thing he says in this double exhortation of verse 28 is take heed to yourselves. You see, we might be tempted to say to the elder that the first thing he needs to hear is take care or take heed to the flock. But that isn't what Paul says. And I think it's very important that we just stop here and notice not only that he said that, but why he said that. Take heed, O elder, to yourself. Indeed, we could say the same to every Christian. Before you begin about, uh, to worry about anyone else, you ought to worry about yourself. Take heed to yourself. That's the essential starting point. This is what um, Spurgeon, in his lectures to my students, the very first chapter, is the minister's self-watch. That's what Paul is talking about here. The minister or the elder's self-watch. And again, we could speak of the Christian's self-watch. Begin with yourself. Examine yourselves. How many elders fail because they start with the people before they start with themselves? Listen to what Spurgeon says on the very first page. We shall be likely to accomplish most when we are in the best spiritual condition. Or in other words, we shall usually do our Lord's best work when our gifts and graces are in good order. And we shall do worst when they are most out of trim. This is a practical truth for our guidance. When the Lord makes the exceptions, they do but prove the rule. Take heed to yourselves. But supposing that the elder has done that, take heed to the flock as well. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Which is, of course, the the essence of the elder's calling. It's, It's why he was placed over the church. To begin with, by the Holy Spirit and by the Lord Jesus, it was to take heed to the flock, to look after her welfare, to care for her, to protect her, to warn her, to do all the things that Paul said that he had done. The elder is called an overseer or a shepherd of the flock. His interest, now that he is an elder, can never be solely for himself or for his own family. And I'm sure that the new elders are beginning to learn that. No, his thoughts and cares must ever turn to that of the church as well. The flock over which he has been placed. Oh, how this fills his heart and his mind and his soul with care. Oh, how it burdens him always. Take heed to the flock. And do you see who placed him there? It was the Holy Spirit, he says. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And when a man hears that, it must fill him with a sense of awful wonder as well as responsibility. 
Suddenly, you realize that no man decides to be an elder. It isn't a matter of man. It's a matter of God. It's a matter of the gifts, as we'll see in Romans chapter 12. It's his measure of faith, which he is to use for the benefit of the church. Well, yes, he's called to that task by the church, but it's really just the church recognizing the calling that he's received from the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, Paul says, who has made you an elder. There's no such thing as a, as a true scriptural elder except he who was made one by the Holy Spirit because no one else can do it. I say it again. No man simply decides to be an elder. The church can't make an elder. A seminary can't make an elder. But the Holy Spirit can and he does and he will. And if the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer, well, then you better get to work. That's what Paul is saying here. Why did the Holy Spirit do it? He did it, he says, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Now, that, don't, that not only explains the elder's task, but also his conception of the church. The church is not his own. And, and you know, I try as, as, as much as I can. I fail, but, and we all do this, but I try not to say my church. How's your church? Well, my church. I know, I know what we mean when we say that. Uh, but it would be better to speak of Calvary and not to speak of it in this personal way as though it belonged to us. I know we're saying, well, I belong to it. That's fine. But let us recognize that it belongs to God. It's the church of God. That's what Paul is saying. And let the elders especially see that. The, the Holy Spirit has made you an elder for this reason, to oversee not your church, but the church of God that belongs to him, the church that he brought into existence. The church that exists as a result of his own holy will and his own activity and that same will and activity that made you an elder. The church belongs to God. And if the church is the church of God, how willing he must be along with Paul to give himself to it fully to shepherd the church of God. But you see, he goes further. When he describes the church of God as that which he purchased with his own blood. And thus the Trinitarian formula is complete. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, only the order is actually Father, Spirit, Son. Or, or is it Spirit, Father, Son, actually. The Holy Spirit made you overseers, the church of God, and then the Son. It's Spirit, Father, Son. Not only did God claim the church as his own and constitute the church by his own doing. But do you see, if I could put it this way with reverence, how costly it was to him? He did not spare his own son. His son spilled his own blood in order that he might redeem the bride for himself. He laid down his life for the sheep in order to gather uh, them as one under his uh, under himself as the good shepherd. Do you understand when he speaks in this way, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood? I, I can hardly imagine a more emphatic way of describing how it is God feels about the church. You see, it's not really enough to say the church belongs to God. It's better to say the church belongs to God because he loves her. Because he sent his own son to die for her. Because Jesus Christ, the son of God, shed his blood for her. Do you understand how the gospel of Jesus Christ produces the church? And when you look at the church in this way, again, as an elder, it fills you with awe. It fills you with wonder. It feel, fills you with a sense of solemn responsibility. If Jesus Christ laid down his life for the sheep, do you understand what the shepherd himself 
is called to do. Jesus says, I said it this morning, I'll say it again. He says to Peter, Peter had just denied his Lord. He was filled with shame. He wondered if he could even go on. And what does Jesus say in restoring Peter? He says, do you love me more than these? Do you love me, Peter? Well, then feed my sheep, tend my lambs, care for the church. Why is it that Jesus tells the shepherds to do that who love him? Because Jesus loves the church. And when you realize that Jesus loves the church, loving Jesus means that I will love the church as well. Do you see that? That's a message both for elders and for the church, for sheep and shepherds alike. But you see, he's still not done. It isn't enough to say it's the church of God that was redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. And by the way, Peter also speaks in that way. It's amazing to see the similarities between Peter and Paul in this regard. But there's also many dangers that ever confront her. He says dangers from without. There are savage wolves who will try to come in, false teachers. But there's also dangers from within. There are people even now, Paul says, who will rise up and they will become snares to the church. Well, what's the point? What's the point that he's saying here? This is not a first century phenomenon. Phenomenon. This is, a fir- this is a, an ever-present truth and reality that the church must contend with, and it is. That dangers will always confront us. Dangers from without, dangers from within. Or let me put it like this. The church in this world never enjoys a state of peace, but one of constant warfare. And I think that's the most difficult, the most difficult truth that any elder has to grapple with, or any Christian for that matter. You come into the church and you experience trials, and those trials begin to cease, and you think, ah, now peace has come at last. And then the next trial comes. Well, that trial passes, and you say, now the peace has come. Hasn't it? No. One trial gives way to another. And so the life of the church goes, and so it's ever gone. Do you understand the reason that is the case? That the church lives in a state of constant warfare? There really are two answers to this question, but I think one is more important. I'll begin with the less important. The reason, number one, the less important reason is because we have many enemies. And because the kingdom of God, as we've seen in Acts, is a disruptive force in the lives of men, of course, Satan will seek to oppose the work of God always, even as Peter says, having exhorted the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5. But I think the more important answer is the second, and that is that it is the will of God for his people. It's the will of God for the church, that we be in this life the church militant, the church on the way, the church church battling. Until we become the church triumphant, the church who has won. I've been reading this book uh, by Daryl Hart, Between the Times, and it's a history. So often we, we want to read the history of the first years of the OPC, but Daryl Hart wrote a book uh, of the middle period. Uh, not the modern, not the beginning, but 1945 through 1990. And there's so many gems in here that he gathers. Well, this is something that the second generation of Orthodox Presbyterian ministers needed to realize. You see, they, they fell into the same exact error. They thought, okay, we fought the battle, and now we can enjoy peace. And about 15 years later, uh, George Marsden, Robert Marsden, excuse me, the father of George, had to say this to the church. Uh, I, I think you're quite mistaken, in, in essence, he said, for we will ever live in a state of warfare, You know, uh, Machen's children were, were, were sometimes called Machen's warrior children. And, well, that's been uh, a way of disparaging them. Uh, but I think we're starting to realize that might not be such a bad thing. This is uh, what Daryl says, uh, and then I'll read Marsden's line. 
He says, war for the nations might be hell, but war for the church was its calling. And then quoting Morrison, the church's life is one long war from which there will be no discharge until what the apostle calls the day of Christ. And so Morrison insisted that you cannot understand the history of the church unless you recognize this. We never do quite win the battle, do we? Or the war, at least. We win one battle, but one battle gives way to another. And it's that message that explains the urgency of the apostles' message to the elders, the Ephesian elders. And so to the elders in Tallahassee, watch out. Be on the lookout for the dangers. They will ever confront you. They will ever threaten to trouble and disturb the church. Do you notice how the apostle Paul describes these troublemakers? He really isn't very friendly, is he? He calls them savage wolves. In another place, he calls them dogs. It's clear that the Apostle Paul, in his great love that he had for the church, nevertheless had no patience for those who would disturb it. And I'm saying that the elders today have to have something of that in themselves as well. They have to have a kind of holy disdain for savage wolves, be they from without or from within, who trouble the church, not only willing to confront and to do battle with such men, but willing in, 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 uh, in laboring in the word to warn the church to be on the lookout from them as well. Therefore, watch, the Apostle Paul says, watch, be on guard. Didn't our Lord say the same thing? Watch. So much of the Christian life and the Christian duty is summed up in that single word. And so much disaster comes upon the church. When the watchmen cease to watch, just as in the Christian life, we could say the same. But having done that in verse 32, and this is really wonderful to see, he's able to commend them to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, he says, and give you an inheritance inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Verse 32. That's a verse which. I confess even I myself have overlooked so many times, even when I preached this before. But let me not overlook it this time. It's obvious, if you just think of it, why the apostle says this. He's commending them to God and he's commending them to God's word. The reason is because he is an inspired apostle will no longer be with them. He's saying, I'm about to depart. You'll see me no more. I can't keep coming back. I can't keep writing you letters. You're going to have to. To to go on without me, he says. And you know, the day will come when every elder and every minister has to say that to his church. But, But do you see what Paul says here? And this is something any Christian elder could say to any church over which he's labored. The word of God will always be with you. I won't always be with you. But God will always be with you. And his word will always be with you. And that word, so long as it is heard and preached among you, is all and believed by the people is always able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. You see, even in an age where we don't have the apostles and where one minister gives way to another, the church has in every age the word of God. And so there is nothing better upon his farewell that any servant can do than to commend the sheep to the care of God. And to, and to the word of his grace, reminding them of what it's able to do. You see, he doesn't just say, I commend you to the word of God. He reminds them of what the word of God can do. It's able to build you up. You don't need me, you see, Paul says. What you really need is the Bible. And you need the kind of elders who will bring the Bible to you.
In other words, here's what Paul is saying. Don't ever pin your hopes on a man, even if that man is the Apostle Paul. Pin your hopes on God and on his son and on his word. Pin your hopes on what God is able to do by his word. God is able to build up each and every one of you Christians in your faith and to give you an inheritance among the saints by his own word and by his own power. That's what his word is able to do. And it can do that in any age, even in the absence of the apostles. And don't forget the weak, Paul says, verse 35. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And following that, we read uh, in verses 36 through 38, he reads these words or, or, or he, he says these words to them. And then they all break down and they plead with him uh, to stay and not to go on and essentially to be martyred for the sake of the kingdom of God. But they don't prevail with him. It's a very it's a very moving scene. But go on a little further than that, and we would have to say it's sad to read our Lord later having to rebuke this wayward congregation in Revelation. Paul had pled with them, but it seems he had not prevailed. And so we see, try as even Paul might, the pleadings of the faithful pastor are at times not enough. But even he must see that. Having commended the people to the word of God, he can do no more. He's done all that he possibly can. It's a sober realization, but one that every shepherd must have about his own ministry. He's not God. He's not the Holy Spirit. Or or as I heard John Shortman once say, I'm not Jesus. Well, I'm not Jesus, and neither are you. All, All anyone can ever do is commend the people to God, and then let God deal with them, and let them deal with God. Each of us, after all, is just a servant in the hands of God. God must deal with his people in his own way, and that's what we see in Revelation. He was still dealing with them. This is a passage which I hope you can tell that, that I love and that one which I feel is, is very moving as a, as a pastor. It's one that I feel that I need, it, but it's one that I feel that the church needs. This is a word for shepherds. This is a word for elders, those who are charged to, uh, to, to, take, to take heed among all the sheep. But I would also say, and let us see, that it is a word for sheep. For everything that the Apostle Paul says that must be true of the shepherds, so the sheep must look for in the shepherds. So the sheep must pray for them. The sheep must encourage them. The sheep must help them. And together they must labor for the glory of God with the same spirit. And so my closing word to you is simply, uh, having heard uh, this message which Paul uh, delivered to the Ephesian elders and which I have delivered to you, simply let us all take this message to heart. Amen. And let us, uh, let us return our praise to God by standing and singing together hymn 513. Hymn 513. Please stand.